the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry. Before I introduce, introduce today's guests, I uh, want to plug the Patreon. You can find us at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Um, but I'm very excited. So we're doing, uh, this is part of part two of a continuing series on Felix Watari's uh, The Machinic Unconscious. And uh, as part of that, I've had the pleasure of having two guests join me for volume one, and we're heading into volume two today. Those guests are uh, Taylor Atkins of the Theory Talk podcast, also translator of the version of the Machinic Unconscious we'll be looking at as part of this series. Also, um, former guest uh, at 4Q248, we call him DC. He has a blog, Pseudoanalysis, and is uh, working towards becoming an actual full-fledged psychoanalyst. So uh, welcome back uh, to both of you for uh, part two of Super Guattario Brothers. Three. Fuck <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, man. It's great to be here. I, uh, I'm glad we're not on YouTube so I, so we can curse a lot and not get demonetized. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Should be yeah, a thanks fun for talk. Us. Yeah, so this time we're, we focused, we narrowed our focus down to a, a single chapter. I think we might have bitten off a little bit more than we could chew the, the first time around. So this will, I think, be an improvement. We've learned some things. And so hopefully this will be a lot more focused and uh, enjoyable to listen to. But I think to that end, maybe we could start out by sort of summarizing a, or giving at least a short preamble in terms of the first three chapters. Because I don't think we really, especially particularly chapter three, we didn't get into a, a whole lot during the first chat. So Maybe we'll have to circle back to it at the end and just yeah. give chapter three its, its due. Um, right. Because I think I mentioned to you while we were discussing last time that chapter three should be read in line with uh, the third plateau and right. you know that's uh, that right there is like three hours and you still haven't exhausted everything right um, not even close that's <laughs> didn't you say uh D dc i think you said that was your favorite plateau is that right is that, is that the ge geology moral yeah plateau? yeah yeah that's my favorite plateau yeah. i yeah. think the pun uh, moral who did who does who does the earth think it is right the use of Professor Challenger, it's all, it's a genius uh, plateau. Yeah, yeah, I like that. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I would just say to, to sum up some of the stuff, or, or at least to throw in a little bit of summary from last time about the first three chapters is this notion that Guattari thinks psychoanalysis has actually gone further astray than, well, you know, obviously the critique in Anti-Oedipus is that Freud sort of at the end of his life is uh, universalizes Oedipus in a way that is, uh, you know, a product of a kind of a colonial 
uh, imperialist kind of high uh, or just kind of overcoating. And he, but he thinks that psychoanalysis after Freud in its kind of structuralist mode, turning to linguistics and using and, and, and trying to quote unquote be scientific by uh, relying on um, view of language as all encompassing is is false precisely because linguistics has sort of sort of hidden or concealed or swept under the rug all of the the pragmatic asperities all the different uh, the very sort of elements of desire that that form the, the the infrastructure for you know the conditions of possibility of language the very like movement of language that can't be reduced to information theory that can't be reduced to you know um, sort of Chomsky's generative grammar, his initial notion of abstract machines is too, is not abstract enough and it's, and it's, and it's too sort of um, looks at language as constituted by units of phonemes and graphemes and morphemes and, and it doesn't get to sort of the micro political basis. Um, and so this is a kind of materialist critique of yeah yeah so so just to to build on that I would say it's Watari's project seems to be about thinking of language in terms of materialism rather than what linguistic studies became which was this kind of attempt at giving a theory of everything, this kind of monolithic reified theory of everything that assumes a lot of givens. Guattari really has an allergic reaction to givens and mm -hmm. wants to emphasize how contingent structures are and how really the, the more interesting stuff to talk about are these hard to articulate material processes that language can appropriate at times, but doesn't really get at. So I think it, that the first three chapters are just, you know, let's get back to materialism in a way. And that kind of, and that's leading, that's kind of guiding us to into faciality. I would, I would agree. Yeah. Linguistics hasn't really dealt with this idea of faciality, a grammar of the face, et cetera. Right. You, yeah, you guys might know better than I, <laughs> to be honest, but that's what yeah. I get, right? Yeah. Faces ahead, are pretty simple. No, I was just going to say, uh, just to piggyback off of what you said, DC it's, it's, Faces are taken as a given, right? Not, yeah, they, they don't they don't enter into the the theorization. Yeah, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I think the concept of faciality is Guattari's attempt to really drive home his emphasis on materialism. The face is the the deterritorialized material ter territory uh, that the voice comes out of, and with it, what we usually think of as like the ego and the subject, the things that talk or enunciate. Um, so if language is kind of this ethereal, uh, non-material thing that gets reified and we take it to be way more serious than it is, if you were to do what is really the psychoanalytic and Marxist task or Nietzschean task is to say, what's the actual physical base material that this ethereal thing is abstracted from, and that's the face. And then what is the face? The face is just a reorganized via evolution uh, head and snout and animal kind of uh, form. Uh, I won't say more than that because I don't want to get off on all these different lines, but 
I, I think that's the connection between the first three chapters and faciality. Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting too that, um, you know, as we said, Guattari, he's, he's rejecting sort of these, begging the questions, these assuming givens or, you know, um, in another, like, another sort of way of describing it, he's, just, he's rejecting all the different assumptions of, of universals of language right um at, at work in, in linguistics and taken up by psychoanalysis and part of what's assumed by not theorizing the face by not rigorously theorizing faciality taking it as a given is that it also is taken as a universal and as we see in both uh, the seventh plateau of year zero and, you know, chapter four of the machine unconscious, it's precisely this, um, this is called in the question from the start for Guattari, right? That it's only certain, uh, <coughs> power, it's only certain power formations. It's only certain sort of concrete assemblages of power that need the face. And, and in that sense, I think this is why, he centers the sort of discussion in the machine unconscious around the sort of prototypical uh, assemblage that needs uh, faces, and it's the capitalist economy of flows, of decoded flows. What do you think about the sort of what I find is a little bit interesting is the sort of hierarchization of like the face has a privileged status as being like the, at least the assumption that that's where speech is emanating from. And like, mm -hmm. I think even just physically and cutting up the body, <coughs> like these partial aspects, like the face is often seen or the head is often seen as kind of like the, that is where sort of the subject resides like physically. Yeah. Ethologists, uh, uh, I forget what the, what the term is, but they have all these theories about why we think the subject resides in the head or, it has to do with like the proximity of the brain and like uh, as we evolve, we unconsciously privilege the head because we know how important it is to keep our brain alive so that the rest of our organs can survive. And then we end up translating that into this kind of subjective tendency to think that the subject resides in the head when it really doesn't. Scientists talk about how uh, we get a lot of our reason, our intuitive reason from our gut that the yeah. phrase the gut feeling the is actually brain. very exactly all the yeah. microbes in the gut um mm -hmm. and how consciousness is actually pretty evenly spread out through the body you know whatever right. that means consciousness right. and that is so guatarian delusion guatarian this idea that and that's kind of what the body without organs is in thousand plateaus there's that section you know why i, I wish i could pull it up off the top of my head. How to make oneself a body without organs. It's in there and it says to think with your sinuses, to dance with your head. And basically they just assign each body part a function that we usually don't think of it as being assigned. Uh, let's see, I can probably pull it up. But, uh, but I think that's part of it. Uh, there, there is this tendency to localize importance in the head, which there is some material reason for it, but then our subjectivity really takes that and runs with it in a way that's not quite accurate. Yeah, right. Yeah, I wonder how yeah. much the advent of like the um, the computer plays into this or screens in general. 
just because when you're thinking like, okay, you have your input and your major input and output functions are carried out via the head because you've got auditory through the ears, um, sight coming through the eyes, and then you're able to yes, output that's exactly vocalization it. from the mouth, right? Yes, a lot of important aspects got localized in the head, so we assume that that's where everything's happening. Oh, here's the quote. Yeah, from under page one. Uh, Body without organs, it is a limit, as a rule, imminent to experimentation. Why not walk on your head, sing with your sinuses, see through your skin, breathe with your belly? Where psychoanalysis says, stop, find yourself again, we should say instead, let's go further still. We haven't found our BWO yet. So I think that's this. That is part of uh, a response to faciality, that this stuff doesn't have to be localized in the face and in the head. It's a body experience. Now, I would I would want to just as a caveat, not to like correct anything that you guys were saying, just that the way in a thousand plateaus the head is described, it is mm-hmm. it it is a little. Uh, I think they they restrict it more um, insofar as it still is considered to be. Um, sort of a part of the body and it's it's really yes. i think i think you guys were on the on the other side of the head's deterritorialization uh on on the face um by the face right and how that and and how they even describe it in a thousand plateaus as an absolute deterritorialization albeit mm-hmm. negative right and where the sort of the face um they do distinguish between face and head. They're not. Yeah, concerned. and I know you guys were, were speaking a little looser. I just wanted to like make sure that that all of that can sort of uh, sort of converge. Um, I think it's an important distinction because the the face ends up being this uncanny, to use a Freudian term. Thing. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's not like the rest of the body. It is this kind of split off part that. Right. Really, it it really gives you a hint of the animal past of of the human it, they say it's the inhuman in the human yeah that's right it's a horror story yeah yeah it is the uncanny you're right and that becomes everything because precisely because it is this inhuman horrific aspect to the to the human it becomes that thing which is uh overcoating becomes so focused on and i think that's the tension in a thousand plateaus and machining unconscious that the face is a territory that uh, it can be a wellspring for lines of flight that open up to experimentation. And then at the same time, because of that, it is also the thing that overcoding focuses the most on. Okay, this this face is a little uncanny. We better really strap it down yeah. and force it to choose between a few options. Otherwise, things will go crazy. Yeah. I think that's the black hole and the white wall, right? Or maybe not. I'm a little confused. With no, 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 no. I mean, I, I think you're right. It's It's, <laughs> it's precisely... It's precisely that with capital, what, what, he, what he calls capitalistic faciality, that's sort of the abstract machine that's kind of captured by this, you could say either by the, the signifying regime, right, the, the sort of despotic regime or the, and the subjectifying, quote-unquote, authoritarian regime. These two, this assemblage is, this mixed assemblage is indicative of capitalism and it's sort of, it, it turns faciality into a gridding mechanism, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you, you mentioned sort of data processing computers and things like that. And, you know, part of it is, I mean, we already have, you know, 
especially in China, you know, you can already think about the sort of dystopian future of, of sort of policing the face, but facial recognition. All, yeah. Yeah. Facial recognition technology, but you've also got this, this sort of this notion that um, deviant types have to be hierarchized and sort of gradated oh, yeah. and, right. and, and it becomes this kind of, I, I guess, I guess the, the point being it's, not necessarily true that, as as DC said, you know, it's not necessarily true that the face has to be merely a kind of social uh, mechanism of of control and of repression <laughs> and of exclusion. It's it's really just. I mean, this is the, this is the the problem with the sort of the, you know with the molar and the molecular. They both have their dangers, just as the abstract has its dangers too with lines of flight. But the, the point being that the, the face can sort of swing from the molar to the molecular based on what they start to describe as these, what, what does they say? Like one of the rules of schizoanalysis is like, know your faces um, because they're, they're going, that's, that's sort of the key to unlocking these lines of becoming and uh and this is where it's also you know this question of becoming imperceptible isn't the same as a question of becoming vacuous which is sort of the it's the absent gaze that capitalism sort of wants us to adopt based on the dominant you know powers that be and um and we do have to be sort of on guard i think to uh I love how he, they talk about, it's always this question of a dominant faciality. It's, it's the elite cutting a brave figure, as they say. And, it's, and I think that that's, I think it's particularly why, just as an aside, the, the classical hero, the, the classical face of the hero is, has now almost become a parody of itself. And you see, at least for the last three, four decades, a sort of, but you could even say, it, it's much earlier, but the rise of the anti-hero has, uh, you know, obviously one thinks of the Joker, not just in the, the latest iteration, but also in, you know, the Dark Knight, um, sort of becoming that that whole notion of, and too, right, we could even talk for hours just about the Joker's face, right? Yeah. Um, versus like Batman's face and how they both wear masks, but as we know, the mask doesn't cover, it doesn't hide the face, um, even if maybe... For Bruce, it is about sort of covering an identity, but I don't think that's the mask for the Joker and Batman don't play the same role. I didn't mean right. to go into popular culture, but you know, <laughs> I'm going to stop. You guys uh, cut me off. <laughs> I, I was thinking about that in terms of uh, even going back to like Milton and Paradise Lost with the figure of Lucifer. I was, yep. right? I think that kind of maps onto that dialectic of chaos, order, etc. Yep. <laughs> you took the words right out of my mouth. I was definitely thinking Paradise Lost. Classical, well, that's a classical anti-hero, right? But right. What do you think about, so I'm, I'm curious, okay, so this faciality isn't limited to the face. It can also extend to the body, right? So is that just in terms of like there being an ideal, an ideal body that is the correct, like the, the uh, sort of platonic ideal of a body? Does that, is, and maybe does that same kind of like platonic ideal sort of structure or uh, rubric or what have you apply to the face as well? I, I think it's more that 
as they kind of indicate that the abstract machine of faciality doesn't isn't content with just 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 sort of taking the head out of the the body system just it's not it's, it's not content with with that deterritorialization it's also that the body itself but also the different parts get um re-territorialized on the face but also in the landscape right we we, we we have to we'll have to say a little bit about the landscape yeah. at some point but it's so this is where you know not just the body but even or the parts of the body but even uh different different objects can become facialized right we know that we, i mean we talk about a face of the clock and that's just kind of a common way of speaking but uh you know it's what he brings up he brings up that novel by dickens where the kettle began it right this this notion of and and part of it too is is like you know this notion of being watched is not just a paranoiac feeling but is also perhaps linked to this abstract machine of facialization where whereby anything can sort of take on a face and i think i don't know was it you coop you put in the notes something about the kind of like psychedelic experience of of sort of uh faces kind of yeah creeping, it's all, creeping up yeah because it's always the thing mm -hmm. or the recommendation mm -hmm. is never never look at your face whenever you're, mm -hmm. yes you're in the midst of a psychedelic oh yeah experience. and having yeah, done I, that yes it is like there's a weird like almost uh i don't know kind of it's cutting through a little bit to the real maybe in terms mm -hmm. of like what your actual face is looking like un without the veil of language or symbolization or at least there's a crack in that experience and so it can be very uh, disturbing to view <laughs> to view one's face in that state go ahead All very psychoanalytic uh i guess psychoanalysis gets at these parallels to this kind of stuff and then Guattari might say structuralizes it too much and then gets away from the core insights but the mm. inf infants uh well related to myself when i was young and my my mother would uh, put on like a face mask, like a mud mask, like for exfoliation or something. I would get terrified and run around crying because to little infant DC, mom is gone and it's been replaced by a monster that's like mom, but not mom. So that's right. like the uncanny. And infants are like that. If you if they see a new face and it's too close, sometimes they'll be in uh, happy sometimes they'll get incredibly sad and they'll start crying or they'll get overstimulated if they yeah. catch their father or mother looking angry or their faces contorted in some sort of way the infant will get distressed um right and it's very big in development but right. uh also talks about it looking or ari or ori whatever that word is where you catch yourself uh in the mirror and you see yourself from a funny angle and you say oh that does who's that and then you realize that was you in the mirror yep um but i think these all speak to what faciality is trying to get at and this idea of the black hole and kind of what you're talking about here with psychedelic scoop i don't want to <laughs> expound too much philosophically <laughs> but i think pink floyd comes to mind in a yeah. wish you were here album where roger waters is talking about um Sid Barrett, a lot of the songs on that are about Sid Barrett. Oh, yeah. There, yeah. It, it uh, describes Sid's as having uh, black eyes like black holes in the sky, mm -hmm. that famous line. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And, of course, Sid did a lot of acid and tinkered with a lot of experimental sound collage music and noise um, 
all very Deleuze Guattarian. So I think there is this, and it's in it's in the philosophy. I was rereading the the, the chapter in Machine Gun Conscious, thinking uh, Guattari's faciality here is pretty much like Lacan's phallus. And then, of course, only a few pages later, he says, <laughs> right. the faciality is like Lacan's phallus, except inversed. Because uh, for both, you know, it's this, there's really this kind of absence or this black hole or this something that's not quite there altogether. It's kind of fragmented. And then there's this attempt to smooth everything over and pull it together into this kind of monolithic unitary symbol, uh, the, the face or the phallus. And he says they're kind of correlated in some sort of way. I, don't, I can't quite articulate how, but uh, I think... I'll, I'll just stop there. I think. No, no, no. It's 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 good. I mean, like you know, they. I forget. It's it's in the machine unconscious. I think where and just I think the very first footnote in chapter four, it says um, it talks about the myths of the double, the faceless man, mm-hmm. and then this notion that when psychotics fail to recognize their own faces, all significations become modified for them. So that, that was one last thing I wanted to say about the, the psychedelic stuff. Um, Cause I could think, I think you could pretty much sort of say the same thing about that phenomenon Coop talked about of looking at yourself yeah. in the mirror, um, sort of the, the play of recognition doesn't, doesn't work on the same uh, normal everyday level, but the, right. the, the stuff about the phallus um, in chapter four, there's a, there's this aside where he, he um, talks about the different, um, you know, different ways of, of, of dressing, different ways of, uh, of styling oneself, different ways of different styles of makeup to go into uh, faciality. And he talks about, he gets he gets to use a, the fun word phallocratic. There it is. <laughs> this is on page ninety four. He says it is through quote unquote behavior suitable to its features of faciality and through the makeup respecting certain fashion standards that a woman becomes quote unquote available on the market of dominant sexuality, thus expressing her submission to phallocratic powers. And uh, I know that's not necessarily the uh, that's just kind of a tangent from what DC was talking about. But um, this, yeah, this notion of, I mean, th- this goes to one of the subsections, uh, the title of the subsections about dressing up decoded flows. I mean, it's literally, you know, the, the, the notion of, of, of makeup itself is kind of tied into all sorts of sort of taken for granted modes of sexual objectification of women. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be merely about the male gaze in the sense in which, you know, Lacan would talk about desire as desire of the other. Um, it, it is also a sense in which, and this is just kind of what I've gleaned from talking to my wife, but also thinking about the phenomenon of, of drag culture and of, um, you know, there is there is a notion of becoming woman. Uh, uh, there is a notion of a variable becoming, and not just a majoritarian sort of resemblance of what uh, sexual standards demands. I mean, there is a sort of empowerment of um, of dressing oneself up. It doesn't have to just be about sort of seeking uh, either attention or seeking validation or 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 wanting to be merely objectified even if those things sort of subtly in here in all of this it is also about uh, a, 
you know, I mean, you know, you could use the butlerian term performance, but there is a kind of, I mean, I think that's what drag culture sort of brings to the fore is sort of the, the performance of femininity, but this, this performance of becoming woman can, doesn't have to be about some sort of identification in any basic psychoanalytic sense. It can be about, can be about sort of jamming the signal of the gritting of the abstract machine of faciality that wants us to sort of be either man or woman uh, and failing that yes or no question. And if, it, you know, merely having to say, oh, well, it's neither one or the other, so it has to be a transvestite, which I think the, the example they give in A Thousand Plateaus, and, and I think drag culture sort of turns that on its head and refuses to allow for that binarization of yeah. yes, no questions to gender. Right. Yeah, it's very much, I think, a Derridian kind of move, right? A deconstructive of the binary itself, of that male-female. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would definitely think so. And I think in, in that sense, it can have transformational aspects and not and aspects of what, you know, on that second level of schizoanalysis, on that, that, that higher level, on the stronger level, uh, about redundancies um, and not merely redundancies of, of resonance, which would merely be sort of like the weaker level, the level of, of, um, of sort of, well, that's the level we're in. We're, we're kind of still circling the, the drain of, of these black holes that, that dominate us. What do you think about, like, I think also, I mean, a trans, just to like maybe do the reverse of this, the, uh, the face of like the trans individual is also like, that's a way that you can sort of see this working. Like there's a specific, like there's a male face and there's a, a female face and anything that sort of deviates from that ideal faciality is, has a negative connotation associated with it. Yeah, you know, um, then even that too, like on the idea of like, okay, so this isn't as severe of an example as, as trend, like a trans, uh, or not a, um, what was the word? What did you say? It was not transsexual, but, um, where you uh, use the word transvestite transvestite, or like, uh, what is it like drag queens, drag queens, the better way. So for example, myself, I, I would, uh, I have like a skirt, like I have, I'm very into fashion. And so. Mm-hmm. I will wear like a skirt as part of this. Well, it, for one thing, it's just, it's comfortable when it's hot as fuck in the South. But uh, sure. yeah. also, it's also a move to like deconstruct this, bin- this like gender binary too. That, you know, there's like a prescriptive aesthetic that one must assume, that one must take on to be considered male or female, right? Yeah, you know, it's, and this is this is where language becomes interesting because this is a very dated term, transvestite. I mean, we don't really even see it much yeah, anymore. Yeah, you don't really. The way that the way that uh, my wife explained it, and and this is not a dictionary definition. This is more anecdotal. Is that a transvestite would be a man? What would also be called a crossdresser. That's another word yeah. we don't really hear anymore. But it would right. be a heterosexual man dressing up as a woman, not necessarily in the same way that and this is this is again kind of a restrictive definition in the same way that a drag queen would be a gay man um performing right womanhood right so or performing a becoming woman so so uh, you know maybe if we were to, to, to use sort of like Deleuze and Guattari's turns of phrase the transvestite doesn't necessarily 
undergo a line of flight of becoming a woman, but merely sort of resembles a either either resemble tries to resemble a woman rather than veritably undergo a becoming a woman. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah, I think yeah, it's I think, the difference think so. between mimicry mm -hmm. to use like their language and uh, what's what's their opposite of mimicry is diagrammatic stuff, right? Right, right. Which yeah. to just mimic someone is kind of rude. Like I think these topics are hard mm -hmm. for to talk about because you don't know which group you're accidentally allying with and which group you're accidentally uh, like uh, opposing. So it's always hard to navigate those tensions, especially when they're not someone you're like, I'm not a part of any of those groups. So I always try to keep sure. that in mind. Like right. who sure. am I yeah. speaking for by accident? Yeah. Right. These people agree, but uh, you know, I don't think any of us have any ill intent, but uh, True. So I think, I tend to think any form that mimics something for your own kind of individual gain and tries to just reproduce those surface level identities right. is not the Luziguitarian. I don't, and it could be negative or positive for the individual. Maybe they get something good out of it. Maybe it hurts someone. It's hard to tell. But then I think, I think uh, what I really like is people who really do good at being weird, which part of being weird and actually being subversive is really complicated because it's always like a back and forth, which I think is what Deleuze and Guattari try to get at is that it's always uh, forms of relative, for the most part, forms of relative deterritorialization and form and expression mm -hmm. collapse into each other. And they really constantly paint these pictures of complex feedback cycles where not much is fixed. So I think that stuff's the interesting stuff. I just finished watching, rewatching The Matrix. Yeah. And I think a lot of The Matrix appropriately encapsulates that aesthetic. I think Trinity is this very masculine looking woman. Oh, yeah. But she's actually incredibly feminine at the same time. Yeah. But she doesn't bleed over to either side in like this neurotic way. Neo is kind of a feminine looking man. He's this, but he's also handsome and. There's all the cyber gothic culture in there that mixes with like rave culture and these kind of weird sexualities and this this CCRU calls it cargo culture where you just kind of take whatever's around you and make it work. There's right. some some rave scene where uh, uh, what appeared to be a woman was wearing a neck brace, but it fit with her outfit, so it was just like just a uh, collage. Yeah, yeah, collage. So no, I mean uh, I meant bricolage. <laughs> Right, the Nicolaj, what's that? That's the sorry, the Levi Straussian. Um, oh, um, yes, yes, yes. It's like, uh, yeah, 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 I know what you mean. Yeah, where uh, you, you sort of you sort of you sort of <coughs> make you sort of make do with the elements at hand, yeah, rather than rather than preforming a uh, a schema to, to follow out, yeah, um, yeah. And I think that you're right, and it is kind of interesting that this foreshadows the Wykowski's becoming going from uh, brothers to sisters, mm -hmm. right? So the, so maybe there is a kind of foreshadowing of, of that. Maybe there was already a contemplation, or maybe that's reading too much into authorial intent. But it is interesting that you would sort of see that that play out with Neo and Trinity and, and yeah. then just... Um, I definitely don't think it's authorial intent, but that doesn't mean they're not connected. I always right. get yeah. cr criticized for that. People say like, Oh, you're reading too much into it, but as 
a psychoanalyst, you don't really believe reading too much into anything. Yeah, it's, it's uh, still it still signifies, as I would say, right? For you sure. Know, yeah. <laughs> and it's probably they probably attempt to aestheticize something that they were unconsciously working through. Right. And sure. it came out, that's how feedback works. It came out mm -hmm. in these representational forms, which are excellent films. And mm. then they got to get the feedback from something outside of them. And then the outside with all these lines of flights got a, got on mm. the inside and changed their own affect and their own body. So I think that's yeah. pretty cool. At least the first one's a good film. I'm, I'm still a little torn on the <laughs> second of, and I'm, I'm that, yeah. and, I, and I'm, I'm not a very big fan of the third one. Um, the so. third one is really just a second part of the second one. Yeah. Like, I, yeah. It's, but I don't want to, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, but no, it's, it's, that's, that's a really good point. I, um, that's what I tell people about psychoanalysis. Uh, most people don't talk to people actually work with patients they think, oh, aren't you just edipalizing, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, if if someone comes in and uh, to use our drag queen example, mm -hmm. if if someone comes in and they're a drag queen and they don't want to know anything about what when goes into that, then no, we just won't talk about it. If they're a drag queen and they want to learn how to try out different things and there are uh, blockages to experimenting, then we talk about what prevents them from doing what they want if they want insight for some reason as to why this is the way they ended up expressing themselves, then we talk about that. So I wonder all the time if how different contemporary psychoanalysis really is from some of the basic schizoanalytic stuff. Cause I think for Guattari, that's just opening up lines of flight, right? Like, yeah. What do you want to do and how do you want to experiment and do things get in the way of it? So what do you, what do you both think about this? So, in terms of like uh, coming from like a person who's somewhat knowledgeable about fashion and, and photography. So there's a certain, like there are faces that are often photographed when it or sought after when it comes to, to modeling and so forth. Right. They're, they're often right. very yeah. like, there's an angular um, quality to them. There's an, there's like a different, more, I don't, uncanny is probably too strong of a descriptor to, to latch onto it. But I think there's something there that is more so like, it's different from someone you might find, I think, traditionally attractive, just to, yes, uh, as an yeah. example, right? Like there's a, a person that photographs well may not, like there's a totally different experience of them or perception of them in person, right? Yeah. It is a bit counterintuitive. You know, you're, you're totally, you're totally onto something there. I mean, there are obviously some models who fit the bill just, you know, they could, they might as well be, uh, um, you know, some celebrity, some kind of sex symbol, but the, the ones you're talking about, you're, you're, you're really talking about more higher fashion models. Right. America. Yes. Yes, exactly. Like someone like Naomi Campbell, for example. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah it's, um, gosh, I, I, I've had to watch and rewatch probably every season of project runway uh, Project <laughs> Runway, and, and you know exactly and what I'm talking about <laughs> and America's next top model yes, and yes. like, and like Australian, I mean, like, my wife has this stuff on all the time, but anyway, yeah. So I would definitely agree with that. And I think here, this is where the concept of faciality traits can be very uh, helpful. And we find, we find it, you know, much more theorized in the machine unconscious, whereas it's kind of, it's, it does, it does still do a lot of work in, in a thousand plateaus, but uh, you know, it's, um, and, and Masumi provides a nice little uh, gloss to why, 
Um, he translates, I believe, um, no, he translates, translates it as trait and it has to do with, um, it, it doesn't matter, but the point being, um, so yeah, I think that the, what you're describing is there's a certain exaggeration even of uh, particular faciality traits that would normally, um, you know, be associated with, you know, attractiveness or whatever, but there's, there is a sort of, you know, as you said, there's a, there's a sort of exaggerated angularity of the face. There's also kind of sometimes an, uh, an exaggerated exoticness, but, you know, yes. in terms of our Western standards. Right. Yeah, absolutely. There's exaggerated um, size of, of the eyes or the shape of the lips or the, or the interaction of the shape of the eyes, the nose and the lips. So it's um, like a dance of symmetry and asymmetry. Yes. And I find the eyes are often a little bit too spaced apart, which I know sounds like a moralistic statement, a little like they're too spaced apart, but I think that's how it comes off. That's how it, it signifies. But I, but, but, oh, go on. Sorry. No, that's it. It just it faces that incite reflection more than they incite adoration. I think yeah, that's fashion's attempt to get us to reflect. Most fashion, I think, is really strange. Like, see people like on the runway with uh, down blankets, like taped to their bodies, <laughs> and like stuff like that, and mm. these really big coats. It's like it's subversive. But, yeah, but you know, also what Coop was talking about. Uh, based on photography mm -hmm. is this notion of, and, and you don't see this in a machine of unconscious, but in a thousand plateaus, they come back to this. And maybe this is some of Deleuze's stuff with uh, his interest in cinema that that's already, uh, yes. that he'll start writing about in a few years where we have in a lot of fashion photography, we have different usages of close-ups and as, as you guys said, angles and uh, sort of in, in, in different ways of manipulating that symmetry and asymmetry dance um, and, and sort of and, and exaggerating even further the, the natural faciality traits. Um, that, and, and so I think in that sense, the, the exaggeration, the inherent exaggeration of these uh, types of models too is on the one hand, able to be more more better manipulated with with the lens and it's 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 also um to go back to your example dc about trinity and neo there's there's a lot of fashion models that uh whose faciality traits also there's an exaggerated and androgynousness too mm -hmm. that is also yeah. very sought and, and highly prized and and so it, it offers and then you and then you take into account um, not just the wardrobes as you were saying with the fashion, but but obviously the uh, the makeup artists and the hairstylists who put a lot of work too into. I mean, it, it is a kind of workshop of you know there is a kind of artisanal interaction with all these different artists whose sort of artistry cre uh, goes into creating this assemblage that the. That the that the we could say that the product of the photographable uh, model becomes and takes on. It's able they're able to become these these canvases that you know that that can be that can take on certain well really certain jobs if you will mm -hmm. right yeah I guess fashion is a good example 
because it can be deterritorializing or reterritorializing because it has this aspect where it introduces the uncanny, the strange, and the weird, and then it has this aspect where behind the scenes it might all be controlled by these big daddy corporations that are right. just trying to sell us things by right. appropriating that desire yes. for the weird. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. We, we all like if you let things really get weird, they'd be really weird on the runway. But uh, fashion knows how to flirt with the weird and then pull back just a little so that the yes. sponsors don't pull out. Right. Yeah. Which I think is the genius of capitalism, whether it's yeah. good or bad or right or right. wrong, is that it knows how to ride these lines of flight and then as Deleuze and Quattari would put it, re-territorialize it at the last moment. Yeah. You really want this weird stuff, don't you? But you want it also so that it's selling this lipstick that is you know, attached to these big faces and big names. So, Are you, are either of you familiar, and this is, I think, getting digging a little bit in the specificity of, of the model and the graphics <laughs> and the artisans. Are you familiar with the term of contouring? When it, uh, as applied to makeup in particular. Similar. Uh, yeah, yeah. Somewhat, yeah. Of course. Right, okay. I mean, so, yeah, it's effectively just um, utilizing makeup in certain areas to like the, so that the light reflects a certain, you know, right? Like yep. there are certain, high, like the highlighting the cheekbones, et cetera, et cetera. There, so there are techniques that are utilized to, to emphasize specific mm -hmm. physical features, right? So that's one thing. Another yeah, example, like, too, that I think yeah. is really interesting is uh, looking at this through the lens of... Um, so the, the state capitol in Austin has this Lady Liberty figure that is at the top of the capitol. And it's something like, I don't know, something like 200 feet high or something. So like those facial characteristics up front are very like uncanny, but as viewed from, you know, hundreds or thousands of feet away, uh, assume sort of this normal facial or this, yeah, this in quotations, normal faciality. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this this notion of contouring. I mean, it, that, that circles us back around to almost where we began with talking about um, drag culture and and. Oh, absolutely. Can, yes. You can you can see the again to use to not to use the term too much, but there is a kind of hyper exaggeration of of a lot of work goes into obviously the contouring in order to uh, perform that. Right take on that the the persona and and sometimes it can be and that can be taken to an extreme in itself that's already its own kind of uh you could say genre of of, of drag style um but then there's also the the kind that is more closely trying to not necessarily mimic but simulate passing to use one of the terms that we see in in Deleuze and Guattari in, in these chapters, this notion of passing as a as a woman, or you know, the the I know that one of the phrases that they used to use, at least I haven't heard in a while, but this this notion of being uh, drag queens being fishy, um, hmm. which which actually is a good thing, right? It's 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 but but that's only one style, and so it gets back to like you know this question that DC brought up about. I mean, I'm just thinking of again. Um, these competition shows, these reality competition shows, Project Runway, America's Next Top Model, where it's where at the end, when it comes down to these three or four artists or models, it always is both, oh, but can you do, can you do avant-garde? Can you do, um, are you more of a commercial 
model right. or, yeah. or designer are you are you merely that can you can you do high fashion can you do um unconventional you know so it, it is this interesting but it always comes down to even in the last instance i mean it's it is always already assuming a capitalist framework and assuming marketability um assuming saleability so i just kind of think i remember when i was first doing my english degree and doing practical criticism and first really getting into like literary theory and philosophy where you know my professor was um talking about prayer for the straight guy and how you one would think that queer theory might be most suitably appropriate for like reading the the show but he points out very clearly that in fact it's it's really more of a you really want to bring sort of basic Marxist theory to it because what are they doing besides sort of selling products and right. sort of and sort of advertising in this more in-depth and intimate way and how we can become the or we, we identify as as viewers with the individuals who are being uh, sort of remade in um, by taking on these products, these hair products, these clothes products, these food products, these yeah. right, yeah, exactly. It's like a, applying faciality to your entire aesthetic, mm -hmm. like your your home, like you said, yeah, the the foods that you eat, etc. Like it's applying that same dominant code for all of it, right? To aid the capitalistic machine, right? It's all right, right. A little too molar, mm -hmm. I think, mm -hmm. to bring it back distinction between the molar and the molecular uh the molar these whole monolithic identities and units with all these associated aspects and traits i bring it back a little selfishly narcissistically to the <laughs> essay i'm waiting to have published on you know the avengers movies which mm. i've seen i like watching them just for the pure kind of low culture the spectacle. enjoyment <laughs> yeah the spectacle yeah, the spectacle. but yeah. when they try to bring in this wokeness and they have like this mm -hmm. uh the scene in the last one where like for, for no clear narrative reason all the woman characters are suddenly assembled and have like this really badass montage and it's like gotcha you know it's some exec somewhere was like all our woke viewers will really love if we have all our powerful women uh, mm -hmm. kicking ass and it, it's just that's totally molar it says look how many uh powerful women we have that's how how good we are right. as opposed to taxi driver which is this gritty nasty movie that flirts with being anti-feminist and racist but without necessarily holding those positions it displays those positions like yes yes art does and it tells you this real story of how different groups of people struggle to interact with each other and how they come out and are able to survive together. And that right. for me is molecular micropolitics as opposed to this molar representational uh, Avengers type stuff. And I think that's what a lot of what's at stake with a lot of these kinds of shows that try to encapsulate some progressive stuff that a lot of people might get used from but then it kind of collapses into this kind of molar unitary like capitalist thing i don't know i don't quite have the language for it but i think you get what i mean how does this okay let me pose this idea um so i was reading Baudrillard's symbolic exchange and death 
chapter four is called the body or the mass grave of signs. And uh, what I think the interesting like tie in here is this idea. So Baudrillard says the ideal body outlined in a statue is that of the mannequin. And then further um, fleshing this out for the political, for the system of the political economy of the sign, the reference model of the body is the mannequin along with all its variations contemporary with the robot and then he mentions the sci-fi film Barbarella. The mannequin also represents a totally functionalized yeah. body under the law of value, but this time as the site of the production of the value sign, it is no longer labor power, but models of signification that are produced, not only sexual models of fulfillment, but sexuality itself as a model. Oh yeah, this is, this is where I would go to some of my favorite cheesy 80s movies. Uh, have you guys ever seen Mannequin? Oh, absolutely. This with the uh, so, yeah. I forget so, the like, name. <laughs> it's Kim Cattrall, I, I, Kim Cattrall is the mannequin, and then I think yes, it's not Andrew yes. Silverman. Andrew something is the other. Is the male? Yeah. Guy. So I mean that 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 right there, and the fact that the all the action takes place in in the mall is like, oh god, is, yeah. It's actually pretty smart. It's a very it's a very campy movie, but I'm absolutely. sure we could. Uh, you could write, uh, we could write essays on. Oh, but then on sure. the other hand, to, br to bring up the, the other side you mentioned, um, what's it called? It's called Short Circuit with uh, Johnny Five. Yes. He's, uh, and, and, you know, the whole drama is, is sort of the military industrial complex trying to, like, you know, basically use him as the, <laughs> as the, proto as the prototype for, uh, for, their, for, for manufacturing these uh, autonomous war machines and that's that's totally counter to the the inventors um whole reason for creating johnny five right which is really about not, it wasn't really about any use value whether it be military or industrial or domestic right it's it's more so about um creating this this almost it's it's almost this interesting way of creating a friend is sense in which he the inventor himself is not like more morosely lonely but sort of lacking the acceptance because i mean the inventor is this um sort of newly immigrated indian fellow and he just he's having a hard time uh fitting in and 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 it's and it's through Johnny Five that he is able to actually like interact with with a with a female that he's kind of always uh, that he begins to desire. And so like it's this again, it's a very campy movie. And but just like Mannequin, you have you have all these different dynamics that involve faciality, that involve you know exploitation, that involve um, you know capitalistic economy of flows. And so it really does sort of intersect a lot of the things we're discussing. And then you have the the reverse of that, or sort of a reversal, is through the movie Chappie. And that's where, like, very similar in terms of the plot to, uh, to uh, yes. Short Circuit, but it's like a reversal because... So Chappie takes on the affect of, of the human, and I think Johnny Five does as well, like, to some... Mm -hmm. But then I think at the, I don't know if either of you have seen Chappie all the way through, but I believe the two human yeah. characters become robots at the end. Like somehow their consciousness is transferred into, into these robotic figures. Right, right, right. 
yeah, that's the, that would involve a kind of fantasy of immortality, right? And, uh, and, and sadly, that sort of uh, overflows the, the parameters of, of at least these two chapters. Unless, unless we were to, like, for example, bring it back to the figure of Christ in the Year Zero Plateau, um, mm. that would be an interesting little segue but i don't know i i i would i want to let coop i'd like i'd like to let you uh keep us on track so mm -hmm. to speak right right well i'll try it so some other just things about interesting i think applications or like questions about how faciality is operating can be thought of we talked a little bit about you and i taylor about the how faciality would work for the blind so i think that's one aspect that's oh yeah yeah thing that i think is an interesting segue or like nugget to chew on also, this idea of like amongst uh, Muslim cultures or is, you know Islam culture, there's the idea of like the veil, the headscarf, different variations of, of the facial of the face being covered. Yes, which I think those are like two areas that are mm -hmm. super interesting to kind of delve into this through the lens of faciality. The basic thing that I had um, just faciality with with the question of of blindness was. You know, in that very first paragraph of chapter four of Machine of Unconscious, he says a, a voice is always related to a, a real imaginary or composite face. And, um, and, and they, they kind of reiterate this in a different way in A, in a Thousand Plateaus. But they, you know, uh, and so just the, the, the whole notion, the whole interesting phenomenon that I'm sure neither of us are at least intimately familiar with of, of sort of feeling out uh, fe feeling facial faciality traits with 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 one's hands i'm thinking very i mean like since we're talking about movies i'm thinking of sin of a woman and um oh yeah and and how there is this sort of there is this moment where pacino's kind of been you know he's he's been ornery and kind of stubborn and he's he's resisting uh this this young man's attempt to either be his caretaker or sort of, or, or whatever. They're having this, but there's a, there is a moment when they finally kind of reach an understanding and and you you have uh, Pacino's character, as I said, kind of perform this very intimate, tactile mapping of the main character's face. And it's it's a very moving scene, but it's just, it's just kind of, kind of shows that even without the domain of sight there still can be faciality uh, and faciality traits can still if not form the same kind of signification as we might find in a visual regime they can still take on a, a sense they can still have a an impact i wonder how that operates though like at the level of your own so like looking looking at oneself in the mirror for example mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it, maybe even in that context too of the of the of looking at oneself uh, under the influence of psychedelics too, like what is that experience like when you're physically incapable of seeing? Like, how does does faciality apply to the blind in this in the same way? Like, I don't know. It's an interesting question. It's also an interesting question whether or not the blindness is onset. Or if it's, if it's, uh, you know, if it's, oh, yeah. um, if it's congenital, 
Right. So there is this interesting question about, because then the question of memory, the question of, 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 of these, of long-term memory and, and, and whatnot, um, and, and recognition would take on different valences. And I think it's, it's something that, that we would need to turn to, um, I mean, this is, this is bringing me back to, gosh, a long, uh, when I first started out with uh, disability theory and, and sort of metaphors of, of, um, of disability and also I, to bring up Paul DeMond again, the, the rhetoric of blindness and insight, which kind of spans not just the whole of Western literature, but really the whole of Western philosophy. It, it would be something to, to revisit, I think because uh, I'm, I, I feel like it's, it's, we are on the edge of sort of our knowledge and that, 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 that is, that is, that is very uh, creative and productive. And, and yet I would feel we would need to uh, turn to some, some other sources to, right. to really flesh it out. But it, yeah. but it is a good, it is a good kind of, I know, I know one Twitter, one of our fellow Twitter mates would know this. Um, yeah. The Atari 2600 or whatever. We, we need to. We should we ask to... him. Yeah. He, yeah. uh, big Guattari fellow talks a lot about, uh, what did you call it? Taylor Dis disability theory. Oh yeah. I mean, like he's, yeah, he would be the one I would turn to. He's, he's, he's doing some really interesting stuff with, uh, programming and operating system that would be modular and, uh, be able to be modulated and it, it would have all sorts of different um, sort of all sorts of different ways to, to to be able to be sensitive to different all kinds of different disabilities yeah. and yeah. and so in that sense I'm I'm really looking forward to what they do in the in the future I'm not sure about their preferred pronouns so I do feel bad I'll have to look into that I wasn't sure whether I don't he, know either. He, we can she, ask. They, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. They seem to be making some cool connections there. It's making me think. Speaking of other movies, you guys seen Event Horizon? It's been a while, but it, it's been a it long, a, long time. It's it's a it's a wild ride. Sam Neill and is it Lawrence Fishburne? Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. When when the sure demons find when hell finally breaks loose mm -hmm. on the ship mm -hmm. and Sam Neill's. Uh, eyes are welded shut. Right. Uh, he right. says this great line: uh, "We don't need eyes to see where we're going." That's the, which that's they're the, going to hell, but <laughs> that's the very uh, space hell, at least. No, that's, that's the very kind of Landian approach to it, CCRU type approach, which is we, you know, all the early CCRU stuff is about these characters that, through future tech, end up connecting with archaic past demons basically technology is just magic that kind of vibe and uh who you are as a person you end up becoming fused with the environment in a way that subjectivity is something completely alien um i think that's what we're getting at with this blind faciality and blindness which is uh which is really what the body without organs as a concept is trying to get us to think about, I think, is yeah. what is human experience like when everything is reorganized along different lines? One example of contingent forces coming together and creating this morphological structure and 
we think it's like this really hard and fast thing, but uh, you know, it's, it's not, it's a contingency. I'm really glad you, you brought up Event Horizon in that, that, that scene and that and that line because it's uh, page one seventy one of a thousand plateaus in the face in the Faciali plateau. They um, I don't want to read too much quote, but they they talk about it's it's uh, the, if human beings have a destiny, it's to escape the face, to dismantle the face of facializations, to become imperceptible, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then they quote, I, I will have to look what they're quoting but the quote is i no longer look into the eyes of the woman i hold in my arms but i swim through head and arms and legs and i see that behind the sockets of the eyes there's a region unexplored the world of futurity and here there's no logic whatsoever i have broken the wall my eyes are useless for they render back only the image of the known my whole body must become a constant beam of light moving with an ever greater rapidity never arrested never looking back never dwindling therefore i close my eyes my ears my mouth yeah. And, and then that's the end of the quote, and then they say BWO. Um, yeah, perfect. <laughs> yeah, because it, it was making me think on a philosophical register, much of Deleuze and Guattari's project, and then the project of the CCRU, is kind of this uh, aesthetic critique of the same critique Rorty, Richard Rorty, I think, did. Mm -hmm. you, you guys familiar with Richard Rorty's Metaphysics of the Mirror, I think it's called? Yeah, yeah that's, that's a pretty... That's one of his famous, most famous books, I think. It's a really important book. Just this whole idea that the, basically the entire Western canon is based on this idea of the mind as like a mirror and that it captures these mirror images of the world and that philosophy and thinking and science are about clarifying the quality of the grain of the image on the mirror. And that yeah. if we could just get a clear enough image, we would know everything and we'd be great. But that's really not what thinking's about. I think Deleuze and Guattari make that abundantly clear. It's right, about right. Creating uh, images, and cr that's why you get the interest in music and film and aesthetics. Really, is it's about creating uh, fiction and, and and movies and things like that. We don't really work on this mirror image concept. So that's like the blindness thing. Is you know, perhaps being blind opens you up to greater creativity. Perhaps not. Perhaps that's just a fetishizing of right. what people yeah. will call disability. It's always yeah. a hard line to walk. I think. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah I wrote a. I wrote a, a long time ago. I wrote a, a weird essay going from Plotinus to Augustine to Descartes, and it's all about this intellectual site. Um, uh, I know that Descartes calls it the the Oculus Mentis, the, yep. the eye the eye of the mind, and. Um, and you know, Plotinus talks about it as uh, this sight without act is the truest seeing. It sees it sees light, whereas its other objects were the lit, not the light. I mean, Larwell plays with this too, and and non-standard philosophy about how philosophy, Western philosophy at least, has always been this logic of the this this logic or this logos of the flash, and it confuses the light with that which is lit. Um, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So it's um, you know it's um, and there is and there is the double turning away. You, you, we have this. I know this is a thousand plateaus is all throughout but this double turning away. You know, sort of um, Augustine turns away from God. He can't like stand his the face of God looking at him, and mm -hmm. uh, he he says something. I think the the Latin is a uh, 
perversi sumus, aversi sumus, which is like, we become perverted, we, uh, we turn away from you. And it's, um, of course, that's obviously very, that's, that's like classic Augustine, just like, you know, God give me chastity, but not yet. You know, it's, it's, uh, you know. Delving a little bit further in depth into this idea of, of the black holes, the, the white wall and the refrain and how that, that relationship. I'll just put my general idea out there and you can expound on it. I think, let's see, for Guattari, the subject is created out of this cobbling together of all these disparate objects. I think he says in, a, in Machine and Unconscious chapter we read, it's not just this production of language, it's the production of plants interacting with other bodies, interacting with animals, assemblage theory. All these things come together, these material processes, and the subject is kind of created out of that. And because the subject is created out of all these disparate material processes and objects combining together in these strange ways, it's full of all these gaps. But I think to avoid the kind of Lacanian association with gap and lack, he talks about black holes. Assemblage of material creates a subject full of black holes. And then I think because language can't work on on the surface of black holes, because it needs to pull from universals. Language theory kind of invents these givens that it's not interested in critiquing. And then it says, this is kind of the way things are. Things are stable and nice and smooth. And then language theory reifies itself by pulling from those uh, plugs in the black holes. I think that's the white wall. So I think through these kind of reifications and feedback loops, uh, they, the screen is created. Guitar uses the word screen and samalakra, which should remind us of our buddy Baudrillard. And basically things end up on the level of simulation. Uh, so the white wall covers up the black hole. The black hole is like the material that doesn't quite fit together perfectly and creates this surplus. And then the white wall is this kind of attempt at smoothing everything over into this easily digestible unit what, what do you think taylor is that kind of on yeah. point or yeah that, that is on, that is it's 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 good and you know i think that um what's interesting about this uh for guattari is you know um in 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 both chapters and in, in the chapter in the plateau he he turns to american psychology right and he uh he mentions three different thinkers but it's it's all about this relation between the child and the and the mother and how the um you know how there is a white screen of the dream or there's a there's the white screen is the is the breast coming coming closer um so you have you have these you know in this in the in the infant um relationship with the mother or the mother substitute whatever you want to call it you have this you have the realm of sensation, stimuli, um, helplessness, you know, uh, but also self-preservation drive. And then sort of that's also always already kind of spliced and propped up on the, the sexual drive, right? Uh, and the mother's face um, sort of, as, as we were talking about earlier about the, 
you know, DC is talking about the infants and, and their relation to faces. Um, I mean, the way I would try to be as like summarizing as possible. Um, so the, the white wall is the, you know, and the, the word is appropriate. It's, it's, it's a screen for signifiers to uh, bounce off of, right? It is, it is that, it is the, it is the, you could call it the signifying substance or it is the uh, substance of expression. Whereas the black hole is the, and they, they say these are, these are always kind of mixed together in, in all the different assemblages, but uh, the black hole would be that station uh, sort of seeps, right? And, and so in that sense, it's not a black hole in the physical sense, because as we know, information light can't escape from it. Um, so it is a kind of, if not the source, then the, the anchoring of, of subjectification. And this is why it's found in the eyes, as we know. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's not necessarily the eyes themselves, but it's, it's in that locus. And it's, you know, we, we have platitudes like um, the eyes are the gateway to the soul, right? So it's this, it's this notion of an outlet for interiority um, and the white wall being a kind of exterior reflective surface. And this gets us back to recognition. This gets us back to uh, sort of the mirror image that we discussed. And it's those two as a system, whether one is dominating over the other or whether they sort of are in tandem um, in equilibrium that constitutes the face, that constitutes faciality. And that, and this is why they juxtapose it and distinguish it from quote unquote primitive societies wherein the head is still part of the body and signifying linguistics has it sort of uh, homogenized this, everything into the signifier where there is this polyvocality where as DC was saying, there is sort of all the different eyes of the rhizome of, of, of nature, of, of vegetal, animal, cosmic, um, all of these eyes have a kind of polyvocality that is, uh, so to speak, summoned uh, in, in this sort of multifarious usages of tattoos and, and piercings and also masks and how the mask is different in capitalistic society, uh, properly speaking, uh, in facialized society, properly speaking, and primitive societies wherein um, the mask has, uh, but, 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 but uh, to be clear, and I think this is where some confusions come up. Sometimes there is a, there is, and I think that in Athos Plateaus, they do a much better job than they, I don't think they were ready for the objections against anti-Oedipus. There is a tendency to see Deleuze and Guattari as harboring a nostalgia for like a lost origin, like wanting to go back to primitive societies or sort of wanting to go back to the animal. And it's and and that is not that would I think get us back into the regime of resemblance in the back back into the regime of mimicry, um, and and it's not about sort of recovering something that is that is lost. It is about um, lines of flight are not mm -hmm. necessarily fleeing backwards to get back somewhere to reverse in any sort of simple way. It, it is about um, sort of harboring 
an ability to open up to new yeah, open up forms, mm -hmm. new mor morphologies. I think this is where the diagrammatic comes in. I mean, yeah. this is this is precisely where the diagrammatic holds the the sort of keys to allowing <laughs> for an experimental transversality, intersectionality, uh, harm harmonization. But it's really, it's it's a it's a kind of uh, it's a crisscrossing. It's a it's a it's always a hybridization. It's never about about recovering a yeah a, a pure past or something like that. And that's where they link up with Freud nicely. And that's why we see so much ethological language, milieu, mm -hmm. territory. And that's why we get Lamarck. You know, Freud was very much inspired by Lamarck and to, I guess, some extent, Darwin, unless I have my time wrong. Um, and Freud, the whole therapeutic part of psychoanalysis isn't that you actually recover this lost memory or this trauma. It's that you recreate it with the therapist right. and then are able to have new thoughts and feelings going forward in your life. Yep. It's about creating, not about getting back. At, at some point in my treatment with people, I'm very validating for a long time and very comforting and help them through things. And at some point I say, when they're ready for it, you can't get back what you never got which sounds like one of those therapeutic cliches, but it's so true because most people have this unconscious fantasy that you can recover and return to this lost past and get what you didn't get back then. Yeah. Oh, my parents never treated me well. If only I could just get people to treat me good now, I could get back that. No, you can't. It's lost. I think that's the losing Guattari's. I don't think they have any romance for the past. I think it's, it's evolutionary. It's all about uh, recapitulation. You know, uh, yeah. the, the past is always recapitulated in the present and that past can actually be used to unlock the future. That's what Nick Lamb calls complexity, that time work works in these disordered loops. That's re, re and deterritorialization. Going back to go forward, going forward, you can be going back. It's all very, very interesting. Yeah, that's almost that kind of Bergsonian influence on Deleuze too. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, and it's it, it is interesting too that you know they they also I mean this is I think this is a lot of the stuff about uh, BWO, but also the becoming intense, becoming animal plateau where they actually say that the form of evolution between heterogeneous terms is involution, right? And it's but it, it's on condition that we don't think of involution as regression. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's because because regressing is is ten is this tendency to be thought of as as becoming less differentiated, but blocks of becoming um, rather than memories, right, are sort of um, they're moving between terms, right, beneath assignable relations. This whole notion of the between is, but yeah, well, I guess we'll. I, I do think you're right about the the Darwin Lamarck. Um, sort of juxtaposition and if we had time i would jump over to simon down because he he finds he finds some reason to to think that that lamarck has merit and shouldn't just be dismissed not that he's necessarily correct about evolution of the species but that he has some <clears throat> at least for the notion of individuation in simon Dunn's sense he has he has some merit to to be looked at yeah 
I always read Deleuze and Guattari saying the same thing. Lamarck wasn't right, but that's precisely what makes him interesting, is that he had the wrong idea and that that could be interesting too. I guess at the same time, Deleuze and Guattari are very against any notion of teleology, uh, which I think the very basic difference is Lamarck was the Talos guy and then Darwin introduced random genetic variation, which is basically the basis of all science going forward, entropy and things like that. But Lamarck's still cool. Going back to the the white wall concept that you laid out, I think that very I saw kind of a correlative to the, this idea, although I think they're probably operating on different registers, but there's the uh, sociologist uh, Charles Cooley had this concept of the looking glass self, which is essentially, I think, kind of getting at the same idea of sort of bouncing, bouncing things off of that white wall to determine like almost like a, the metaphor of sonar. Um, yeah. Sort of trying to trace out the, your own sort of physicality through, or whether it be both, physical traits, but also I think psychological traits or personality traits too, by bouncing them off of, of the other and gaining, gaining all of your insights from yeah, the when other. Me, when me and you talked, Coop, before we talked about that and Felix Guattari's, uh, the psychoanalyst he liked the most and cites the most is Donald Winnicott. And Donald Winnicott had this concept of true and false self, which he distinguishes has nothing to do with mystical ideas of selfhood like Jung, but uh, basically false self is like the white screen, the white wall, the looking glass self, where like basically who you think you are is just formed around how other people see you and what kind of feedback you get from them. And the right. true self for him was like, what do you actually want? And what and when you're not so worried, shows up in Deleuze when he says, if you're trapped in the dream of the other, you're fucked, which I think is very <laughs> true for Guattari and Deleuze, and very much what faciality is about, that to not get too locked into that feedback. Okay, so we're going to, we'll pick back up with with refrains and, and get into that bit, which I don't have a whole lot to contribute to. Yeah, we can. I mean, we can be uh, brief on the refrain stuff because we're going to do that next time. Yeah, but but we can at least like you know uh, imply it. So it's like a an aggregate of matters of expression that draws a territory, develops into terri territorial motifs and landscapes. There are optical, gestural, motor, etc. Refrains, and that's from Thousand Plateaus. Mm -hmm an element capable of holding territory or an assemblage together. Yeah. Repeated images, gestures, rituals, or sounds that enable both human and animal social assemblages to hold together. It's from the dictionary. Um, but yeah, I don't know if I, like I, don't know if I, under <laughs> I, don't well, know if I understand how that exactly applies to faciality. I, 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 I mean, I think that in I think that of the refrain is 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 a very deep and complex plateau, but it's not impossible. And I would just I wouldn't want to turn to that um, until next time. But yeah, we can I, defer to that. 
But the one thing that okay. I would the one thing that I would say about refrains in in the machinic unconscious um, is that on the one hand you've got you've got faciality, which for Guattari, of course, is is a question of uh, re de territorialization, right? And and so it's it's a substance of expression and it is intimately intertwined with landscapity, with landscapes. Um, and so in a certain sense, it has a kind of quasi-spatialization function. Whereas with refrains, we move to a question of temporality, question of, of time. And, and it's precisely why these are the two sides of these are the two sides of the territory, one could say. These are the two sides of sort of the, 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 the diagrammatic dynamicity of assemblages, sort of space and time. And it's not a universal space and time. And there are obviously differences in faciality throughout the different types of regimes of signs, just as the same with, um, with refrains. And we'll see next time that the bulk of the, that chapter of chapter five, the next chapter is also a calling into question of the sort of presupposed universality of capitalistic refrains and how capitalism also creates this kind of hyper centralization of refrains and hyper redundancy and, and constitutes um, what he'll call music with a capital M and it's, it's it's really important to understand that phenomenon of a kind of homogenization of refrains and asepticization of refrains because it'll become important for his reading of Proust and how Swan fails where the narrator just barely succeeds precisely because the latter is able to is able to go into that dark night of calling into question of sort of the the the, the pre-established modes of music with a capital M and and find in Von Tuil's little phrase the sort of diagrammatic semiotic component, this this asperity that that is able to sort of rewire his his sort of affectivity and rewire his whole his whole sort of preconceived configuration allow him to, to go on a, a sort of a line of flight that at, at first he wasn't prepared for. And it's very much in that sense, the sense in which, you know, Deleuze talks about if there's an ethics of the event, it's it's not to be unworthy what happened to us. And so, you know, capitalism with faciality and, and refrains and it's kind of um, in its in its hyper redundancy and hyper centralization makes it such that, that every event is almost predisposed to being the lowest bar such that as Nietzsche would say, you know, it's, it's great to have, you know, who wants, who wants easily defeatable enemies? We want, we want our enemies that we vanquish to be sort of gods with shining swords. So like the, the, the sort of the rhizomatic possibilities of, of, temporalization and spatialization of landscapity, faciality, all this um, is rendered sort of quotidian and every day it's, it, it, everything passes, you know, to a certain extent, at least to the extent that, that it is made to become passable. And that's where I think Watry 
finds it um, eminently like dangerous for a radical analysis of of the unconscious, where it's it's only suitable for a, a, a neurotic um, analysis or just making <laughs> making people enjoy their neuroses and, and being like pre-equipped with them and accept them, sort of predisposing them to you know to to capitalism's um, base uh, requirements. Would you say it has to do with redundancy of like coding? Like I always mm -hmm. think of it like, let's see, capitalism has a plane of expression full of all these slogans and informational languages that it produces. And to get somewhere, you have to kind of dabble in office politics and learn uh, the language of the machine. <clears throat> you have to take in the language of capitalism and then reproduce it so that way you better kind of align with it. And so in that sense, you end up, that's where all these virus kind of concepts come from. You end up taking in a little bit of the territory of capitalism and then right. reproducing it just like a virus, obviously re-engineers your protein to be a little virus factory. I mean, that's that's a good analogy. Your, your notion of a redundancy of coding, yeah, it's it's this question of, internalizing the processes of encoding uh, and 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 so the sort of collective assemblages of enunciation or collective semiotics of social time right collective refrains mm -hmm. become become centered around around the individual and and reproduced by the individual the spiral way as you said and part of that role is obviously given to different different forms of media from from mainstream mass media to obviously all the different type. We've already talked about some of the, the media earlier, which included, you know, included fashion and photography and advertisement and, and movies and uh, television, which uh, sort of, they, they, they delimit theoretically at least or uh, commercially or the most sort of, in the most um, resonant way, the sort of dominant modes of acceptable speaking, dress, looking, but also listening, right? Because this is this is part of why growing up, uh, you had, I mean, at least for my generation, you know, it, it went from the radio to like MTV, VH1, and you saw what those those channels became I mean, they started very much with music videos, and and so it became it was merely a kind of audiovisual. Uh, but then it but then but then very quickly you, you had less and less music, and and more and more like of these all kinds of reality TV shows, wherein music was merely just just a, a kind of excuse to 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 portray these really kind of over the top ways of living, these spectacles of living it's kind of the it was kind of, it's kind of the that audacity you could say that gaucheness or whatever that um is in some ways it's a kind of on the one hand it's the kind of sedative for uh accepting the you know our predisposition to to accepting um what is given to us and and to only accept 
what is given to us rather than just than to seek and to rediscover and to discover anew and to invent, et cetera. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that that's, 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 that's where again, Guattari will go in this, um, you know, he's, 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 he's very, he's very bleak, at least in these two chapters about what capitalism does with these concrete, uh, assemblages, right? He's, he's, uh, our concrete machines to be more, it, it depends. I mean, like Guattari can kind of shift here and there, but you get what I mean. Facial faciality and refrains are uh, for him. Capitalism does something with them that, that turns them into elements of social control, but also elements of like accepting our own subjection to dominant powers. Mm-hmm. How does that look in terms of the uh, creating this normal sense? Like this every the everydayness that Watari talks about, I believe. It's uh, let's see, this is what like page seventy seven, yeah. and it talks about um, one of the reasons behind the fascination for everything retro seemingly involves some sort of maladjustment to the recording of everyday life, only as to consolidate with in the current faciality type. And that get that I guess that gets to fashion too, because he's talking about well at that time they found it normal to have this kind of a face circulating mm-hmm. among carriages, mm-hmm. etc. Rickshaws. Yeah, it's, I mean, the, I guess, I I mean, I I suppose that normal faciality is, is the sort of epiphenomenon or the after effect, the after image of the, the sort of the gritting effect that, that the abstract machine of faciality under a capitalist regime sort of are already uh brings about right so it's it's do we pass or not how and you know and if we do not pass and to what to what degree outward do we pass because you know as they they say the deviant types are organized by like first second third fourth choice out of from the center of the the quote-unquote christ face the, the white face the white european man and the deviant types are um you know are allowed within certain places, within certain uh, areas, within certain landscapes, within certain ghettos, if at, at certain times, right, uh, deviating out from the propagation of waves of sameness. So it's, that's, I mean, that's where we could at least spend a moment, if you guys want, talking about sort of that, that, theorization of racism and xenophobia we find in the um well we find it in both but i think it's very explicit in i'm thinking page 178 and kuba and i talked about this earlier of um the divergence types the first divergence types from the white man are racial yellow man black man men in the second or third care category etc right so it's this this yeah, yeah. go ahead. i I'll, I'll send it over to you Well, I really liked their handling of racism in this chapter, the plateau. I actually wrote something on it for a magazine and it hasn't come out yet. So I don't want to read just straight from my article and be like that, but uh, I do like the excerpt. Alterity from the viewpoint of racism, there is no exterior. There are no people on the outside. There are only people who should be like us and whose crime it is not to be. The dividing line is not between inside. This similar excerpt from Zizek, and I think we had a listener who sent us a long email who we all talked to 
who said, you know, Lacan and Deleuze and Watari aren't that different. And I think there's an article by someone named Smith. Let me see if I can bring it up. That actually makes that argument. It says, well, anyways, that's just an aside, but uh, it's not unlike when Zizek said, the problem is not cultural difference, their effort to preserve their identity, but the opposite fact that the fundamentalists are already like us, that they secretly have already internalized our standards and measure themselves by them. His idea there is that um, he says, if these kind of 9-11, the people who did 9-11, if they were truly fundamentalist, they would just say, well, the West can do whatever they want uh, and we'll be okay because in the end we'll get saved by our God. Right. This idea that really, uh, what does that say? That the dividing line is not between inside and outside, but rather is eternal, internal. So someone else's standards gets inside us, we internalize it, and then we judge ourselves by their standards and that creates all these conflicts. So I think Deleuze and Guattari in this chapter have this great, idea that it's not this lack of knowledge of other people. It's the fact that we know the other person quite well. We actually are competing over who can have the authoritative say on, uh, on things. I think that came out a little jumbled, but no, uh, it's the opposite of Lacan and the kind of alterity theory that comes out of kind of the Hegelian stuff, which is like right. this humanism of like, we don't know these other people. They're different than us. And if we could just get to know them, we would all be friends. And uh, so it's, it's this fantasy that there's a negative, there's a lack, and that the lack gets filled in with a fantasy. And this is kind of like all, all Thusayer's uh, mm-hmm. definition of ideology. And in that information lack, we fill it in with a fantasy or a transfer. And so then we act like, like destructively on these ideas. It's uh, Deleuze and Guattari are far more Freudian, like his paper on negation, where there really is no yeah, yeah. negative. We already kind of have these thoughts and feelings, these drives, and they're negated afterwards. But I don't know. I'll let you build off of that. I, yeah, I mean, I, think I would they just, got it right. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I would just say that uh, the the one thinker that I can't help but, and I mentioned him earlier, the one thinker I can't help but think about with these two chapters is obviously Levinas, and I don't want to go into him too much, but this sort of this notion of the um, this notion of the the face of the other is, or the appearance of the other as the in the face as is sort of the it's, it's the appearance of God in, 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 in height, right? It's this so there is always this asymmetry between. Uh, the sort of the absurdity of the ego um, and and the other the alterity of the other and there's mm-hmm. always this there's always this calling into question um, there's always this um, you know and and he'll even call it about a, a sort of where we we are taken hostage in this not merely negative way or you know in a way that merely victimizes us but that sort of gets us outside of our separation qua ego and um, allows us to participate. And, you know, in, in, it becomes very problematic when you try to like line up Levinas with um, Deleuze and Quattari's language, because there's a lot of interesting ways, ways that you could do it. You would just have to modify the different conceptual terminology sure. so as to align them. And that's where I think, you know, I would just, 
say that um, calling the face a horror story, I could see, I could see Levinas saying that, but having a different inflection. And because there is in the, as we know, I mean, in the Spinoza even says this, you know, like the, the one, the one human to have sort of withstood the, the face of God, um, you know, and, and lived to tell the tale is supposedly Moses, you know, on, on Mount Sinai, right? So there's this, because um, God only showed him his elbows or something, right? There's this, there's this <laughs> sort of back, <laughs> yeah. And there's a sort, so there's a sort of you know unbearable burden of, um, of the face of the despot or the face of God, and and the sort of necessary turning away, that's um, that's called for. Yeah. Well, I guess maybe this will connect up with what you're saying and might clarify my ramblings. I think Deleuze and Guattari are thinkers of disjunctive synthesis as opposed to either or. And I've always read disjunctive synthesis as meaning that things connect through their disconnections and that they don't have to mm -hmm. be part of the same like set or order. I don't really know the analytic connotations, so I'm not committing to those, but they disparate objects interact with each other and they're not agreeing is in fact a connection, which is the whole argument Freud makes for negation. When you negate something, you're positing it as something before you negate it. Um, and I think faciality is an attempt to get rid of disjunctive synthesis. It says in order to synthesize things, you have to be all A or all B. And that's part of the whole racial thing. The whole racism thing is you either have to be uh, white and white people rule over everyone, or you either have to be minority and minorities rule over white people. And there's this, creates this terrible binary where people just, neither side is going to accept that. And then I think the concept of minoritarian is an attempt to get away from that, but still reclaim some of that kind of power dynamic. And I think minoritarian is in opposition conceptually to faciality. It's this idea similar along with the molecular that, uh, well, it's, it's molecular, I guess. Yeah. I it, guess, it's, 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 it's becomings, right? Lines of yeah. body. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I would just add really quickly that, that you're totally right. It's, it's the inclusive disjunction that, yeah. that, that Deleuze and Guattari are after that Deleuze is, at least since 68 um, and it's it's the very fact that there is a paralogism of the unconscious in faciality that wants at least in, in a capitalistic regime that wants to proceed by way of exclusive disjunction yes exactly well put yeah inclusive versus exclusive what's the text on our agenda <laughs> i mean yeah. i think we've we've already slipped pretty well into the capitalistic faciality right discussion and which kind of brings me back to, I mentioned the idea earlier about um, like the Mus Muslim headscarves and, and face coverings and so forth. And I think there's something interesting there, like in the rejection of that, or like, like the, cho the choice to do, to do that, to obscure the face. Mm -hmm. Like there's a, is, is there like a capitalistic repulsion because it can't territorialize that as seamlessly as it can an uncovered face because you have that right mm. so there's that element to it but there's also the like capitalism can 
territorialize it in the sense that you have those like you know people will have like a gucci face scarf or like a, a versace like that that sort of thing is has now been territorialized by capital as well but there's still like an element of incongruity in, or incongruence mm-hmm. and i wonder if that's like an element too of like there's an uncanniness what do you guys think i mean the whole assumption and this is probably uh, a cultural bias but the whole assumption is precisely that by covering the face of women uh, at least you know in 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 these regions it's supposedly about um limiting the access of the gaze to the face precisely right. because of the movement of desire yes. and the movement of objectification and and yet at the same time in that in that movement there is obviously a different kind of phallocratic dominant power at, at, at stake yeah. um, than there is in western capitalist societies now and i see and we can see in you know saudi arabia is a great case i mean capitalism uh is you know is is not just like the unconscious uh, isn't aware of negation, capitalism really isn't aware of um, of sort of the sovereignty of states, including the sovereignty of of delimited cultures. And so we see in in Saudi Arabia this provisional yet also kind of backward-looking liberation of women from you know from not being able to drive or having to to, to cover uh, their face, but it's. But it's also interesting too that you you find on the other side in in Jewish culture the the notion of men wearing a hat precisely because it shows um, shows this passional subjection to 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 being subject of God right to being to showing deference to to God and and you know uh, I mean Badu talks about this in his Saint Paul his his book on Universalism. This 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 thread, this threading of the needle that Paul had to carry out with the question from these different churches about should we wear um, hats or should we not, and uh, you know should it be men or women, and and you know he he tries to thread that needle by kind of saying like you know either either everyone does it or no one does it right it's this you know it's this wager on you know, like. And, and all, a lot of these questions are solved axiomatically like that by Paul, where it's this wager on, uh, on this event of, of, uh, of Christ's, um, not death, but which is just the eventual site, but, but, uh, the event of his resurrection, which is that, you know, uh, it, you know, either, either all men rise from the dead, um, yeah, you, know, you know, Christ rose from the dead, so all men rise from the dead. If that's not true, then Christ never rose from the dead, right? So he, he it's the same kind of wager. It's this, it is a kind of, uh, of, of all or nothing to try to create a kind of uh, a, a stratum of universality. And so I think that, yeah, so I mean, but, but I'll, I'll, I'll kind of proceed like DC here and, and say, I, you know, culturally, I wouldn't know enough. Um, I mean, we could, we could talk about it theoretically in this framework, but you know, it's, it's not, it's not a, I think it's wrong in a certain sense to say it's about hiding the face to conceal it from desire. I think that that seems to be a merely 
um, majoritarian way of looking yeah, at it, but, it's but, too, but also, a, <laughs> yeah, I, it's too easy. It's not on the like it's on the surface register. Yeah, it's a part of the that abstract machine, but also it's a part of the the very. I mean, think about the the conjunction of that those uh, of faces because I mean, men in those cultures too wear wear head wraps. They just don't necessarily cover the whole face. Right. And so, yeah. like it it is in, it is in conversation. It is in it is an interaction with the landscape, which is um, usually mm -hmm. involving all kinds of huge swaths of desert. And you have to one has to think that there is also this kind yeah. of even practical consideration right. of of covering one's one's head and face. That was my other thought. We'd have yeah, to really look at who was the first one in power to say this should be, or was right. it perhaps the opposite? Did it come from a subject, a small population of people did this? Or we'd have to really look at the material circumstances. Yeah. But I think it's a great question to raise because I haven't really given it much thought. Um, I'll have to go read up on it and ask my my friend, my Persian friends, uh, mm -hmm. there's a lot of Persian people in psychoanalysis and I have a lot of colleagues who are Persian. So I'll but ask them what their thoughts are. I think the one thing we could say from our aspect as, you know, white Western males, uh, is that in the past few decades in certain countries, I'm particularly thinking about France more than, but, but also perhaps in America, there is, there is this, reactionary pushback to uh, even considering allowing that type of dress and one wonders because cap it's not capitalism that, that capitalism <laughs> can make a, a fashion line and and make money off of selling uh, these garbs so like what is it that it's precisely that that question of which heads do not pass in the fucking system right, right? Yeah. it's this question about deviant types and this question about a about uh, uh, belonging to a territory, this notion of, uh, of, of landscapes to faces really is about belonging to a collective, belonging to who, who is allowed to belong and who, is, who incites a reactionary, uh, go back to your fucking country, right? So that's one thing that I um, always found, and I'm sure it's still a phenomenon today, it, maybe it's preceded in light of other more pressing problems, um, but it, it definitely, even in the past decade, was there was there was. I mean, I, I, I assume if I remember correctly, oh, this I mean, is still I, a debate. I think that rages. Well, didn't France pass laws limiting the the allowance of? Uh, I vaguely remember. Uh, of, I vaguely remember that being a thing. Yeah. So, and and that and that is 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 that type of legal drill. Um, power play by the dominant formations is you know you're you will you will signify you you will constitute a white wall and a black hole you will be facialized and i think right. that that, yeah. that really gets back to deleuze's notion of um what you brought up earlier coop about this question of a of a normalized faciality and, and what is allowed to to circulate amongst the faces and where? I mean, I assume the laws would allow it to only be restricted to like, um, to like maybe mosque worships, but that's not, that's precisely not congruent with the cultures from which that's, that's not, that's not how it is. It's not restricted. Uh, it is, if one is out and about in 
society and and one is one is uh one is identified as a woman then one ha one is supposed to one is uh lest lest you face a certain correction and so on the flip side in france france is really trying to uh also you know create a or at least control a kind of homogeneity of culture in this quote this scare quotes way but this is the same way they they have so much more control over what passes as correct french we, we still yeah we, we don't we, have that as much we still talk about the queen's english but we don't have a we don't have a french academy yeah. of 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 thinkers who are saying this is french this is not and so i think that there's something to that phenomenon in france that yeah and it and we obviously have all kinds of reactionaries and pockets of reactionary uh and and anti-muslim sentiment in america but it's it's a different type of juridical structure it's a different type of legal um i assume that certain maybe counties and 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 districts have have their own little local laws maybe that that are, are like the the anti-burka laws of, of france but nothing that i know of at least on a state level but again that would be something interesting to see i mean i would be surprised if like you know like texas or mississippi or hell even georgia had weird laws or at least attempts at passing legislation concerning um the allowance of of, of that that type of headdress do we, we want do to we, transition to yeah, questions let's get some questions before um before you need to go yeah and it sounds like we're planning to do another one of these yeah we'll do yeah oh well yeah, yeah okay we do anything one. we don't get to yeah i mean i, I think I saw, we actually we actually covered a great deal of the questions. Um, I wanted to extend. Here's I okay. want to just read read this bit from uh, Baudrillard, and then I'll go through. And I think maybe there's only like one or two questions that we haven't already integrated into the conversation. But I think this is interesting. Um, this again is coming from Symbolic ex uh, Exchange and Death, Chapter Four, Page One Twenty Three. The naked thigh and metonymically the entire body has become a phallic effigy by means of the this shazura a fetishistic object to be contemplated and manipulated, deprived of all its menace. As in fetishism, desire can be fulfilled at the cost of warding off castration and the death drive. Eroticization always consists in the erectability, erect, erectility of a fragment of the barred body and a phallic phantasmization of everything beyond the bar in the position of the signifier and the simultaneous reduction of sexuality to the rank of the signified. A reassuring structural conjuring operation enables the subject to be recovered as phallus, to identify himself with and reappropriate the fragment of the body or the entire positivized, fetishized body in fulfillment of a desire that will forever misconstrue his proper loss. Continued, even if the body is not structuralized by some mark, a jewel, some makeup, or a wound work to this, this end, even if it is not fragmented, the bar is always there as the clothes come off signaling the emergence of the body as phallus, even if, or rather, especially if it's a woman's body. This is the whole art of the striptease, which we will refer to you later. Very Lacanian. Yeah, very, yeah. very, I think, I don't know, something about that kind of maps onto this, I like this whole reaction to the head covering and... Definitely. Yeah, well, that's, that's good. Made me think earlier that the only thing I wanted to say on the headscarf that I think is general enough not to be absurd is that um, 
by if it isn't a, motivated by an attempt to negate, then like with most things, by attempting to negate it, you bring more focus to it. And I think that's a little bit of what's going on this this uh, excerpt you just read, which is the 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 object of desire also being barred is always this single unit and uh, often the not having it or the negating it is part of the wanting it, at least in that those kinds of lenses. Um, I don't know anything past that though. <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting excerpt that could be broken down. I'd have to, what, what was your, uh, what caught your eye about it and what, what were your thoughts on it? So it, it just kind of mapped onto earlier this sort of fallacization fal- uh, of the face mm-hmm. was really what gripped me because it talks about this too, like the body becoming a phallus. So that really I thought was a very like one-to-one connection with machine and unconscious, or I believe, because yeah. there's that passage that directly, let's see, on their side of deterritorialization, capitalistic powers put forth the phallic function, enslaving all the effects and contents of the sexuated body to an operative, a signifying system founded on their social division of the sexes, phallus on phallus, while on their side of deterioration, they present constellations of faciality traits that personalize and humanize this reductive operation by restoring desire to tiny territorialities, either derisory refuge within a smile, a wink of an eye, or in the micro bastions of power and a repressive grimace of the father, the teacher, or the internalized superego. The personological faciality attributed to individuals by the socius does not remain external to them. Thus, it is not legitimate to bring back faciality to a theatrical mask as the Etruscan etymology of persona would yes. result in doing. Now I, now but there's I even there's it. even a better there's a um, there's another passage it's in the notes that I want to dig through since you're you're sort of uh, running out of time here. We can uh, hop into a, a couple of questions if you guys don't mind or have time. Can I just give a concrete understanding of that bit? That sure. This yeah. Can connect those two is um, my concrete language. Uh, like the erotic exposure of the leg has become a sign of like sexual interest and connection, but it's totally lost its material uh, root or material base. It, for someone at some point, it might've been something that someone did uh, spontaneously because they were fe- feeling sexual, you know, I'll expose right. my leg in some sort of gesture. And then it became abstracted from that material moment and reified. And then through the media, it became to be known as a sexual symbol. So when you do it, you're not doing it because you feel sexual. You're no, you're doing it because you think you should feel sexual. Right. It's become simulation. So yeah. we just simulate these gestures that aren't in themselves sexual anymore because they've been emptied of that. Right. So I think that's faciality. I think that's a really good excerpt you brought up there. All right, I'll shut up now though. <laughs> well, yeah, let's hop into questions. Uh, let's see. So one thing that I, so Alonzo brought up an interesting question in relation to a thousand plateaus and specifically white hole, white wall, uh, black hole. Um, he mentions Let's see. Also, this also seems to be criticizing Gestalt psychology, which that's out of my wheelhouse. But I don't know if either of you have a can comment on that at all. I mean, yeah, 
Guattari kind of talks about Gestalt psychology, you know, offhand a little bit in Machine and Conscious, and I think they they refer to it just in passing in uh, in a thousand plateaus. And um, let me see if I can find the footnote. So this this goes back to the stuff about Renee Spitz. So this is this would be in both um, this notion of a Gestalt sign in infants constituted by the eyes, forehead, and nose in movement. Um, in the second month, the infant follows the mobile face of the adult with his eyes, and while nursing, it continually fixates upon the mother's face. It smiles at a face or a mask, but solely on condition that is seen as a face. So this is the, this is the question. This is the white wall black holes. I think that that's, that's an interesting question because precisely the white wall black hole could be um, considered if we if we took up gestalt psychology as this grasping of a of a figure on a ground right or on a background so it's this this ability for a, a kind of a dimension of depth or relief um, so to speak and um, Simon Dillon does a lot of work through the Gestaltists and finds and, and shows why their their notions of information uh, and their and their notion of form because that's you know literally what Gestalt means in its in its roughest sense um, is is lacking. So it's this this emergence of a form from a background or a figure from a background that I think Spitz is working through in his discussion of the of the screen of the breast as it, you know, um, approaches the, the infant's face or mouth, really. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that perhaps they are playing with this, uh, they're playing fast and loose with that, the, the, that sort of common understanding of a figure ground. Next question. I think we'll, we'll go ahead and wrap up after this one is, uh, okay. Would it be fair to say that faciality is the typical order of organization for any given assemblage? No, not any given assemblage. You know, as they repeat, certain assemblages, certain power formations need faces, rely on faces. And it's really with the advent and ascendancy of signification and subjectification that faces take on their ballasting supportive role which is not to say that the other assemblages don't have the the elements of it, it or you know scraps of the white wall or, or bits of the black hole mixed together within them it's just that they don't necessarily turn them turn the face into uh the substance of expression mm -hmm. from which uh signification subjectification will will take on their their dominance and 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 sort of begin to reduce all the polyvocality of, of of all the other parts of the the body or all the other uh, components of expression involved in uh, throughout nature, animality, and the cosmos. So it's kind of like, in a certain sense, then they they, they it can be likened to how capitalism is described in anti Oedipus that sort of capitalism is always kind of um, there from the beginning in the most primitive uh, societies in embryo, but they're constantly warding it off, right? They're, mm -hmm. uh, they're constantly sort of warding off this 
you know, the, the, the Erstat, right? So it's, it's, one, one could perhaps say the same thing, uh, you know, hypothetically, they don't necessarily just create an analogy between that, but yeah, I mean, they do, they do suggest that it's, that the, um, the components are there. It, it's only with sort of the, the aftermath of, of Christ, the aftermath of this kind of imperialistic, uh, colonialist sort of overcoating of of the the white European Christ face onto other cultures and sort of that that that, that that's what sort of erects or begins to erect this um, establishment of faciality as a as a kind of um, dominant overcoating, absolute deterritorialization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say most assemblages don't have faces. That's a kind of a humanist attempt. The Holy yeah, Roman Empire did that. <laughs> right. I mean, you have pre-signifying regimes, you have counter-signifying regimes, and those two are the ones, you know, out of the four regimes that they describe in the regimes of signs, uh, plateaus, even though they... They say that the that assemblages are always mixed. They do they can take on dominant coordinates, and so um, if we look at the counter signifying description, we see this this movement away from we see this movement away from sort of the dominance, the the almightiness of the of the of the signifier, and and that does come with certain ways of warding off the the dominance of of faciality. I think that'll wrap up discussion for this week. But uh, DC, since you've got to go, I'll let you go ahead and pitch pitch your blog and anything else you want to before you sign out. Oh, sure. Yeah, just follow me on Twitter, DC Barker Tick. I forget what the uh, what the ad is, but it's it'll be linked. And then read my blog because my Twitter is just a mouthpiece for my blog. And then look out for my eBooks. I actually just released a small monograph on uh, Deleuze Guattari and aesthetics and the CCRU. So pulling from some of that when I talked today, but uh, yeah, thank, thank me again. And I really like talking with both you guys. So I'm looking forward to the next, uh, the next installment. That sounds great, man. I'm looking forward to it too. All right. I'll, I'll talk to you guys on Twitter and then I'll talk to you when we talk to, when we do this next episode. All right. Hell yeah. Thanks, man. Thanks again. Bye. All right. Your turn, T. (laughs) Well, thanks again, Coop, for for having me on. I I really enjoyed what we did. I do feel like what what we, the scope of today was was more manageable than than last time. And we still, we still ended up with a whole bunch of content. I don't know what timestamp we're on up to. I assume two hours. Am I wrong? Yeah, we're like, I think we started recording at about three, so almost, almost two and a half. That's great. Yeah, so <laughs> we, we we still ended up kind of hitting that 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 benchmark again, and um, you know it's 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 good, and and of course um, we'll we'll sort of be able to return to not only this concept of faciality, but also the concept of landscapity we'll get more in depth with that we kind of just touched on it uh but also when we do refrains you know 
all of this will, will sort of be able to, to come back and prepare us for uh, the later chapters and especially the Proust part in Machine of Conscious. So, you know, and as you know, A Thousand Plateaus is kind of crisscrossing and, and rhizomatically spreading throughout all the different plateaus. So, so uh, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely see, be able to, to flesh some of this stuff out more. So, yeah, um, you can always follow me on Twitter at tadkins613. Uh, you can also find my podcast with Joe Wiseman. It's uh, Theory Talk. You can follow us on Twitter at, at theory underscore talk. Um, and we also have a Patreon, too, if you guys want to throw us a few bucks. Uh, Patreon.com backslash theory uh, talk. Maybe it might be theory hyphen talk. See, I can't even. Yeah, don't. If you can't find us, you won't be able to get us money. But you could. You could probably Google it. Um, <laughs> otherwise, um, you know, read, pick up, pick up a copy of Machine Conscious. Look at it and uh, and and follow along. Um, or download a PDF and you know follow along as we're as we're going through some of this stuff so that you can you can dive in with us. Well, thanks again to both of you. This is awesome. I'm lucky to have the opportunity to uh, to have both of you on at the same time and to just sit back and kind of like I kind of like pass the ball between. I'm like the point guard passing the ball between the two like scores. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Setting up the alley oops right. and the assists. Yeah, and exactly. Yeah, I yeah, know it's it's driving the ball. Yeah, controlling the pace. Yeah, I, I do. I do <laughs> appreciate you. Um, you you being able to to hold back, but also you know you 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 participate when when there's a um, when, when there's a good line going. You know right. you'll you'll jump on in. So I, I like that you're able to to do to do both. Um, but I'll go ahead and, and sign us off. Before I do so, I just want to mention you can find me on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H on Twitter at Unconscious H-H and on Instagram at Unconscious H-H. But this will be the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry discussing the Machinic Unconscious uh, Machinic Unconscious um, part two and part three will be coming we'll, we'll set a date at, at some point so keep your eyes out for that but uh, we're signing out for the day awesome the very rules of eating of negativity and singularity
wanted to watch.